0: Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership.
1: Will Rogers famously declared, I never met a man I didn't like. Clearly, Will Rogers never practiced medicine. Clinicians face difficult patients on a routine basis. As our healthcare system strains under the pressure of a pandemic, some of our fellow citizens may not be on their best behavior. So, what to do? Don't be tempted by cynicism or substance abuse. My guest today has a fresh and positive approach to those miscreant patients. Prepare to have your anxiety levels decreased. Let's get started. My guest today is Joan Nador. She is a board-certified emergency medicine physician. Dr. Nadorf is the author of the recently released Changing How We Think About Difficult Patients. Dr. Nadorf, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you, Mike. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I've been looking forward to this for some time because I've got to tell you, emergency physicians have the best stories. And of course, we need to get started with your book and Difficult Patients and the obvious question is what is a difficult patient, which I'm certainly going to ask, but I want it richly illustrated with examples because I am sure that you have great stories about difficult people. So can we start there to have an understanding of difficult patients and then um, we'll we'll move forward?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Difficult patients are people who don't follow the rules that we set out they don't do what we suggest they don't make it to they don't keep appointments they don't fill the prescriptions or take the medicines that we suggest in general they don't want to go along with the plan that we set out for them so it is a very subjective thing that a subjective rule of what difficult is that every nurse or physician or a healthcare care professional has um, and Not everybody follows the same plan and not all of our patients actually even know the plan or as we define them. So uh, I'm going to say, for example, a lot of patients would come into the emergency department and say, I have this sort of aches or pain. And I would start, you know, suggesting what the treatment would be. And, um, you know, after a workup and they say, well, I don't want to take any medicine. I'm like, well, um, what? what would you like me to do for you then? And, um, you know, we have to f- come up with a plan. Uh, but when the patient uh, says up front that they don't want to go along with the plan, it makes it th- th- that that person is going to be viewed as difficult from their healthcare care professional. Um,
1: and I assume that sometimes patients can be difficult to certain providers, but not others. Is that is that fair?
2: Absolutely. I mean, there I uh, wrote about in the book about uh, that my one of my personal problem type of patients was people who would come in with an active nosebleed and uh, it's very upsetting to them. They don't know what's going on. There's usually blood going everywhere. They're very anxious. They're spitting and coughing and it's very hard to kind of get them to calm down. And let and let and you know let us do what we need to do to them or for them. And uh, I was speaking about this issue with uh, one of my colleagues who happened to be an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And he said, "I love nosebleeds. Uh, those are my favorite patients." Well, there you go, right there. So, f- for that fellow who's trained in that, he's got all the right equipment. He knows exactly what to do and how to calm people down. And he has the right uh, apron and, and masks so that he doesn't get blood all over him. He thinks that it's really fun and he can fix the problem. So that goes to show you that uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is just, it's not the patient's diagnosis or the patient himself that's uh, the issue here, uh, because we all have different thoughts about different problems. It is... Uh, our thoughts that matter, and we can actually change our thoughts so that we can get, uh, work our way to having better thoughts about difficult patients or the patients who we consider to be difficult.
1: Some patients are just flat out hateful, are they not?
2: Yeah, that is true. Um, in uh, in the book, I talk about, uh, I go back to one of the uh, original uh, articles that... Uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. James Groves wrote. He was a psychiatrist on the, uh, the general consultation service at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he wrote an article in 1978 uh, called Taking Care of the Hateful Patient. And um, he came up with four kind of stereotypical types of patients that doctors dreaded seeing. And I think it's important to become familiar with the four categories because just becoming aware of them and seeing that this is a a patient type that we all struggle with makes it a lot better. And um, I can go through um, quickly the four categories just so we get a little uh, idea, a taste of what Dr. Groves was uh, writing about. The first one was um, called the dependent clinger. So, these people are very called clingers. They're excessively needy and they require endless attention and reassurance. They make inappropriate requests for reassurance and uh, repeated pleas for explanation, affection, pain relievers, sedatives, and more. And these people use kind of flattery and childish behavior to uh, get the physician to give them endless attention and reassurance. It's important to know that you're seeing this type of person because there's a certain way that physicians have to deal with it. They have to set limits on the patient's expectation. The second type is called the entitled demander. And we all see this type of patient as well. It's a person who uses intimidation and threats to get the treatment that they think they're entitled to get. And they think that they're entitled to get special treatment. Uh, And they uh, try to control the doctor's behavior uh, or the nurses. And this type of behavior is born out of a fear of um, abandonment. So we need to reassure these people that they are entitled to great medical care and we try to give everybody you know, the best medical care. This third type is called the manipulative help rejector. These are people who never seem to get better and they have a quenchless need for emotional supply and they, they're looking to the, for the physician and to, to give them some of that emotional attention. And um, sometimes when we get them better from one problem, another uh, symptom or illness comes up because they're afraid if they don't have some sort of illness that they won't have the relationship with the physician. The fourth uh, category is called a self-destructive denier. Um, these are people who uh, disregard the necessary treatment. They have very self-injurious behavior, uh, like uh, smoking or drinking or drug addiction. I think some of us view uh, people who refuse to take vaccines right now to be kind of self-destructive deniers, um, and it, it's very difficult for uh, physicians and nurses not to feel uh, dread and 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 dislike for people who we view as, you know, kind of going against our wishes and hurting themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, of those four categories are some more prevalent, more common than others?
2: Well, I think that um, some, some of the kind of clinginess and um, the dependence is one of the natural uh responses to illness that we see uh, people uh, just n- normal patients who who are ill or injured uh, kind of regress to a little bit more childlike state which we actually consider to be helpful because we want people to follow our advice they look they become a little more childlike and they look to us in the physicians in a very paternal or in my case maternal role. And um, we want them to listen to us like a child would listen to a parent. So I, I think that's probably the most common. Um, I write a lot in the book about uh, it, it, which is not just in the emergency setting, but we see an awful lot of uh, patients, a lot of our repeat visitors who have drug or alcohol problems. And it, it's it's a constant um, source of uh, issue in the uh, emergency department.
1: So. Just to be clear, these are not your categories. You you've used them because they date back to Doctor Groves' categorizations. Is that is that correct?
2: Those were his categorizations. This article came out in 1978. Just want to make sure you understand that was before I was in medical school. And what was interesting and such a uh, you know trend setting. about this is that this topic was very taboo. No, nobody ever talked about not liking their patients. But he's, but Doctor Grove said, and there was a lot of response to this over the years that these sort of thoughts and feelings that we had regarding these patients were very useful clues to us as to how we're thinking, and and those type of thoughts and feelings are not to be ignored, um, and. Because sometimes we find ourselves being annoyed or frustrated with people before we even realize that we're having those feelings. But there always is a thought preceding it. And if we can kind of drill down on that and get more curious, it's quite helpful.
1: Are there other more useful categories than the the four that you set out?
2: Well, for me, I always like to... um, try to be curious about everybody's uh, illness, but I think the more useful categories, at least in in, in my practice in the emergency department, I would like to categorize people into those people who I thought had problems that were really emergencies or urgencies versus kind of minor annoying or more chronic problems that could wait because the emergencies or urgencies, I needed to get on and get the plan rolling as urgently as possible. Um, I think that another uh, way to for physicians and healthcare professionals to to think about patients are the people who they can help versus the ones that would probably be better if they went elsewhere. Now is not to kind of we should validate that they have the problems, but they might be better served in another setting or with another provider who you know with falls kind of more under their specialty because sometimes patients show up at the wrong office thinking I don't mean actually the wrong office but the wrong type of specialist when some sort of generalist is not the person they want to see, they really do need to see a specialist. Um,
1: whose fault is it that the patients are being perceived as difficult?
2: Well, I don't like using the word fault or blame uh, because I don't think that we should blame patients for the way that we're acting, but I think that the responsibility for what physicians and nurses think lies squarely with us. So if we think that we can't uh, get something done or we can't be happy or we can't solve the problem unless the patient does exactly what we think or say uh, or changes their behavior, uh, that we're never going to be happy. We're always going to be frustrated uh, in our roles uh, as the physician. And this type of thinking, it's rampant right now in particular, we're, you know, in a stressful situation with uh, COVID, it is, is very troubling. Uh, the only thing we can change is how we think. So we need to be responsible for our experience and and how we think about, about patients. Um, now, it's it sounds simple um, to change the way you think, and it actually is uh, an elegant, simple problem, but you wouldn't come to it naturally uh, because of three things that I like to identify. It's not your fault that you think this way. We're, we're actually uh, naturally our, as as humans, sometimes our ancestors had to scan the horizon looking for threats, um, or else they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be able to live with the tribe. Um, and so we're as physicians, we're always looking for the worst possible diagnosis. We're, we're always on guard that there's a, a, you know, what we call a zebra, um, some sort of unusual diagnosis that that is um, causing a, a person's problem. And I think the second uh, thing that that the second situation that happens is that our group think in the medical profession um, is extremely negative. And uh, we're, we're actually taught to think that way. In on rounds in the hospital, our senior resident would make kind of disparaging remarks about the patients. In the break room, in the emergency department, everybody's talking in a very negative way about various people and their problems. And when you're kind of brought up in that uh, environment, you you don't even realize, you just think that that's the truth. Um, But the truth is that everybody has adopted a very negative way of thinking. And once you become more aware of it, and it's one of the things I do in the book is try to call people's attention to how you're falling into these traps. Once you become more aware of it, you can put a little pause between those thoughts and uh, how you feel and thinking, how can I think about this person in a different way?
1: Do you think that the negative thoughts or views that are expressed are really just a way for providers to uh, protect themselves psychologically from a lot of uh, trauma, death that's in front of them?
2: I do think that that's part of it. I think we literally have been taught as part of our training to kind of distance ourselves emotionally from some of the terrible things that we're seeing. I think part of it is kind of a gallows humor uh, that uh, we're kind of making jokes about what's happening. And um, unfortunately in some offices and also in the emergency department, some of them, which are very open settings, in other words, the patients, um, uh, the little cubbies or carol or where the patients are set, their beds are in, a, in an open room. Part of this is so we can see them um, because out of sight is out of mind and that's a bad place to be, but they can hear what we're saying and uh, that sometimes they're hearing very negative talk and part of our, you know, kind of gallows humor is is really, you um, unpalatable.
1: You write about the think, feel, act cycle. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, sure. The think, feel, act cycle is an awareness tool. It's a way of considering how we humans react to various circumstances or event that happen outside of um, ourselves. So, I, I use an example uh, in our book, the example of what happens is a patient arrives in the office or the emergency department. Now, this is a neutral event. In other words, you know, it's nothing bad or good about it until a human has a thought about it. Um, And for, like I mentioned, a lot of us are predisposed to have very negative thoughts about uh, some of the patients. Now, I, I gave an example in the book of a crying child um, coming into the emergency department. And for those of us who really like to see kids, we think that's great. We get to see a kid and we'll interact with them. And at the end, we'll get smiles and giggles and gurgles. And, and that's wonderful. But then there are a few of us, and I, this is how I started out, because I didn't understand what was going on with the kids was kind of dreading that because they're just crying. They can't tell us what's wrong with them. The parents are really overly uh, demanding. And, you know, those, some of us dread seeing the kids. So it's not the patient, it's our thoughts about it. So that's the the thought part of the think, feel, act. So the the thoughts that we have uh, cause us to have certain feelings or emotion, whether we're uh, a little bit afraid of what's happened or we're uh, annoyed or angry. So when we're having these feelings there, we need to think back at what thought caused them. And then determined by, by how we're feeling, we have an action or uh, some sort of reaction in the medical setting, we're ordering lab tests, we're doing procedures, um, we're ordering x-rays. And we're deciding uh, whether so someone has a problem that they can follow up with in an outpatient setting or they needed to be admitted to the hospital. So by looking at this think, feel, act cycle, we can uh, help view uh, our thoughts about patients in, in this setting. And if we wanna have better feelings, we can kind of improve our thoughts and we have give you, give, um, provide patient uh, care professionals tools to have more intentional thoughts about their patients. And do you believe that that
1: results in better
2: medicine? I think it does, because I think that what you think, your thoughts matter. And when you think and have better, more compassionate thoughts about your patients, you will listen to them longer. You will uh, spend more time with them. They will be more uh, your, your patient's interaction with you will will be kinder, more cooperative. And if you have some of those ingredients, you will have better results. and you'll certainly do things like have better, survey results and evaluations, and you won't have people leave in an angry huff, or what we call in the emergency department, when someone disagrees with us, and they don't want to follow our plan, sometimes we ask them to sign out against medical advice. Well, if we could possibly change the way we think about what the people are asking, we could get them, we could kind of collaborate on some sort of plan. I'd rather have them treated or half treated uh, than not treated at all, but we have, you have to be a little bit flexible on that.
1: I'm interested in thought distortions. What can you tell me about thought distortions?
2: Well, thought distortions or, or the way I use that word are certain ways that we go about thinking. Um, and in this, of course, I'm talking about how we think about our patients and their distortions in that they're not really accurate or factual. Um, one of them is personalization. And I talk about personalization um, it, It's as a way of that, that, that some of us tend to look and take too much responsibility or too much blame for whatever is happening with the patient at that time when there's no objective reason to do so. Now, this is problem because uh everyone is going to die at one patient one time or another and if you're the last person to see that uh patient before they die uh, and you take on that responsibility or feel the guilt or shame that the person died while you were taking care of them it's it's not appropriate because some everyone will some every one of us is going to be the last physician or nurse at the bedside of someone who is dying and sometimes that is exactly the thing that's supposed to happen. Uh, and we're supposed to kind of uh, shepherd them through the end of life. So uh, personalization is is one of the thought distortions I talk about. I talk about all or nothing thinking, which is kind of viewing issues in the extreme. Um, I think some, some kind of headstrong physicians um, feel this way. You either do it my way or you have to sign out against medical advice. I don't think this is helpful. There is not just black or white or all or nothing. There are, you know, about 20 or 30 uh, options in between. And we have to ask the right questions to come up with um, the correct thoughts and not think with this distorted views.
1: It sounds like much of this is trying to, to better understand where the patient is coming from and that one size of medicine does not fit all. Is that a fair critique?
2: Yes, absolutely. Because I I think that uh, one of the things, as I reviewed a lot of this literature and thought about it when I first kind of came up with this idea, when I first started in practice of emergency medicine, and I found some of these issues so troubling, um, you know, you, you see 20 patients in 19 interactions go beautifully and the one that goes badly just kind of torpedoes your whole day. And to try to understand how things went wrong, what are these people thinking? Um, they, they're they usually thinking that they have the correct solution to get themselves better or if they're parents to get their children better. And I think the onus is on us to try to understand where they're coming from better. Uh, part of uh, the first few chapters of my book talks about various stresses and fears that all patients have uh, when they become ill, and it is so much more helpful to understand where people are coming from.
1: At what point, though, is it best just to move the patient on to another provider? At what point do you just fly the white flag?
2: That's an excellent question. Um, In some cases, you have to enlist help. Uh, you know, if, if in an emergency department, if there's more than one provider, you can kind of ask one of your colleagues to help. Uh, in an office setting, you don't always have that, or if there's single coverage, you don't always have that. But you you usually can enlist um, the help of the nurses or, or other personnel or um, I, I think one of the things I talk about is a kind of walking away and giving someone time to cool off and and, and give them time to think about it. And they say, OK, you came here for me to try to help you. And um, you're kind of you're, you're denying or saying no to all the options I'm giving you. Why don't you decide how I can help you? And um, I'll give you a few moments to think about it. Sometimes if it's a anger issue, a few moments to calm down, give them a drink of water um, it, or what they need. Um, so it, there's no hard and fast rules about that. You always have to protect yourself because obviously there are issues and these are real of, of violence and people are getting angrier and more violent uh, and you need to protect yourself f- first
1: do you think people are becoming or have become more angry and more violent during this time of a pandemic?
2: Uh, I think that is true. I think they have. I think that there are a lot of people who are being exposed to one way of thinking. I, I, I would call it misinformation about the effects of this illness or the uh, effects or the issue of vaccinations and feel that kind of in that entitled demander part that they're entitled to a certain treatment, uh, even though uh, the physician feels it's not indicated. In fact, it's actually contraindicated. It should not be given. It could harm a person. And uh, unfortunately, we are seeing a lot of Uh, anger and misunderstanding. Have you
1: seen this in the past? Has there been, for maybe lack of a better term, a politicization making it more political in the emergency
2: department? What I saw previously that was troubling for me was the uh, kind of patients being shamed for illness or. for example, during the time that I was in medical school, we started seeing young people die of HIV/AIDS, and did not know what it was at first. Did not know how it was being tram- transmitted. Did not understand it at all. And there was this tremendous uh, victimization of the various people who were getting it. Uh, people, you know, that at first they were concerned about people of. Haitian descent and uh, homosexual descent. And there were people, there was this vast morality judgment being made, and it is absolutely uncalled for and inappropriate. And, um, you know, that that sort of bias uh, against some patients, I think some people feel that that sort of thing is going on now with people who are being labeled as underlying conditions. And these, you know, people don't choose to have some sort of underlying condition or autoimmune disease or obesity, and they're kind of being blamed uh, for the illness. And I think it's inappropriate. I think it's one of those thought distortions that physicians and you know the rest of society has that we have to need to open our minds and be more curious about.
1: As we wrap up our our time together, I was hoping that maybe. Um... You could tell me how providers choose thoughts so that difficult patients don't seem so difficult maybe walk me through a scenario of uh, of a difficult patient and how you would approach that that situation
2: so i i think that um there are a, a lot one of the people we People who we would see a lot was someone who was kind of very angry and oppositional. Uh, a patient with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, usually, these people um, were smokers for a, a lot of their life. Uh, in their uh, w- when they were young, people like my father, he was uh, a service member in the World War II. They gave cigarettes to the soldiers, and this is just something right. that they did. They turned a whole generation into smokers uh, before we knew how harmful that was. And um, instead of blaming them for that, uh, and just when we see those people, we need to ask better questions and be more more curious. Could I be wrong about what I'm thinking about them? This is a question that we have to ask ourselves when we're dealing with someone, a difficult patient. Um, Can I give this person the benefit of the doubt? Uh, Is this angry person somebody's father or mother? Those things are true. I mean, there's a person who may be uh, an angry man with COPD, but it's somebody's father. And, you know, if my father came into the emergency department, even though he might be kind of grumpy, I'd like everybody to give him the benefit of doubt and give him um, the best care. And I think another question we could ask or way to consider to, to change our thoughts and think more intentionally about these people is, is there some of their behavior a symptom of their disease? And the answer is often yes. Someone who's very grumpy kind of anger is a part of this chronic disease. They're thinking, why me? Why did this happen to me? Uh, I was always doing what I was supposed to be doing. And they're kind of grumpy about, uh, or angry about having to be on oxygen all the time. It feels terrible. I mean, can you even imagine how awful it must feel not to be able to catch your breath? Um, So if you think about someone more in those terms, I I think that you will have more compassion for them and you will not view them as difficult. Now you may find, I like to use the word challenging, and I think, are you challenged by them? Yes, you are, but you're up to the challenge. You know, you can find a way to um, bridge the gap with that person and uh, come up with a solution to get better results, better treatment, get them feeling better.
1: The book is changing how we think about difficult patients. Uh, this is certainly a book that will make you a better physician, and I think make your life better in the practice of medicine. It's an important book, and I certainly recommend it to to all that's listening. Uh, Dr. Joan. Nador, thank you so much for being on Sound Practice and for writing this book.
2: You're welcome. I hope that everybody will uh, give it a listen, give it a give it uh, a read. It's a short one, but I think very impactful. Could have a tremendous impact on your day to day practice of medicine.
1: We'll let that be the last word. Thank you so much. My thanks to Dr. Joan Nador for her time and for helping her profession with a tough topic. Her book is Changing How We Think About Difficult Patients. I highly recommend Dr. Nadorf's book to you. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday.
0: You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org.
2: man <laughs> Robin